This podcast discusses murder and domestic violence. Listener discretion is advised. In the month of April, 1901, prisoner number 4654 entered the Anamosa State Penitentiary. She was 57 years old. Only one other prisoner, a doctor, who was 70 years old and had performed an illegal abortion, was older in the female population than prisoner 4654. In the register, her occupation was listed as widower. Prisoner 4654 was Margaret Hosack, recently sentenced for the grisly murder of her husband, John. On April 16, 1901, five days after the end of her trial and the declaration of her guilt prescribed by 12 men, Margaret Hosack returned to the Indianola courtroom and stood before Judge Gamble. For the crime of murdering her husband in cold blood, Margaret Hosack was to spend the rest of her days performing hard labor in the Anamosa State Penitentiary. When Judge Gamble asked if there was any reason she should not be given this sentence, She replied, Before my God, I am not guilty. Judge Gamble was seemingly moved by her plight and her words, but nonetheless, being bound by the law and having presided over a fair trial in the same courtroom in which they now stood, he said to her, Sometime and somewhere in the providence of God, it will be revealed whether or not you have spoken truly. When she was delivered to Anamosa State Penitentiary by Sheriff Hodson on April 18th of 1901, Margaret told the sheriff that she was innocent and begged him to tell her children not to weep for her and that one day people would know she was innocent of the crime she was convicted of committing. Anamosa State Penitentiary had been built over a period of 30 years by inmate labor. It rose from the plains like a venerable medieval fortress more than a prison. It had walls that were 22 feet high and 6 feet wide at the base, tapering up to 4 feet wide at the top. Guard towers were positioned along the walls, but inside there was a small city. The penitentiary had their own generator for electricity and boilers for heating water and steam, which helped to heat the whole penitentiary during the winter months. There was a vegetable garden for inmates to grow their own food. There was a hog enclosure that the inmates helped maintain as well. There was a hospital, a chapel, a library, a carpentry, and a tin shop. There was a stone shop, and there were places for laundry and clothing, as well as a barber shop and a bathhouse. There was also a well from which prisoners could draw fresh water. What Margaret Hosack was walking into was not a modern-day prison, walled in on all sides with only a small area for outdoor activities, but more of an enclosed city. Here, Margaret would have washed and sewed clothing, helped clean the prison area, and tended to the vegetable garden. At night, or when not tending to her duties, she would have returned to her four-foot-by-eight-foot cell that held a single swinging light bulb for electricity. As Margaret Hosack wore away in the state penitentiary, separated from her land and her family, William Barry and John Henderson were busy working on her appeal. Her son, Will, came to visit her once, not bearing the happiest of news. 
He and Johnny had lived on the farm and tried to take care of it, just the two of them. But the court said the farm had to be sold to settle John's estate, as the property could not be divided amongst all his children and his wife. Yes. Even in prison, convicted for his murder, because he had no will, Margaret Hosack was entitled to one-third of the money from the sale of her husband, John's farm. Would that have made her happy, though? She had left one home, never to see her family again, save for her older brother Donald. Now her only other home was being ripped from her family because of her husband's death. Even if she was acquitted at a second trial, Margaret Hosack would have no home to return to. Her son Johnny had moved to Des Moines to work for a gas company there. Will had replaced Johnny on the Truett farm where he had been working. Jimmy was also working taking care of himself. While in prison, Margaret's daughter May had married and lived with her new husband, Ira. Ivan, the youngest, had been sent to live with the family of George and Anna Van Patten on a farm nearby to the one that had once been his family's. This was the news that Will brought to his mother. Their family was dissolving, and her home was no more. In October of the same year, 1901, Barry and Henderson filed their appeal. They had represented Margaret Hosack once, and they would do it again. They did not believe she was guilty, and mistakes had been made in the first trial, most notably the evidence of the hairs being presented. They should not have been allowed in court as they were not able to maintain a proper chain of custody for the hairs. All evidence, in fact, their appeal stated, was not enough to support a guilty verdict. What about the dog? What about John and Margaret's reconciliation? What about the blood on the back of the undergarment? And Clammer, the prosecuting lawyer, he had appealed to the jury's passions instead of their reason. He made up a story of how the crime could have happened. He ended with the news of Alex being born out of wedlock. Yet this was not a reason for murder. Margaret had been with John Hosack for 32 years. Why would she strike out 32 years later for having a son out of wedlock, followed by nine more children, eight of whom survived? It took six months for the Iowa Supreme Court to reverse Margaret Hosack's conviction. And on April 18, 1902, she was released from Anamosa and returned to the Warren County Jail. Upon her arrival there, a doctor examined her, saying she was suffering from nervousness and illnesses of the spine and perhaps the brain. She had aged poorly in the past year, and the doctor said it would be better for her if she was allowed to go free, to walk outdoors, and to see her children. A judge ruled that the doctor was correct and that Margaret Hosack could be released if a $15,000 bond was posted. In today's money, Margaret Hosack's bond would be $532,166.86. Yes, over half a million dollars. And yet, neighbors came forward to sign sureties amounting to her bond, and Margaret Hosack was released to her family. She went to live with her daughter Anna and son-in-law Ev, the same family she had fled to on that fateful Thanksgiving when her and John's marriage seemed irreparable. Her friends and neighbors signing sureties to help release Margaret on bond 
showed the change in opinion of the public in regards to the Hosack murder. At first, many thought that Margaret was guilty. She was there in the house. She was lying next to John in bed. She had not awoken when someone came into the room with an axe to strike her husband? How could she have not awoken and not known there was someone else in the room? But after a year to simmer on their thoughts and the evidence, many people began to think that perhaps Margaret Hosack was not guilty after all. She was beginning to be seen in a more sympathetic light as the woman that William Berry had described, a mother who was devoted to her family, who had spent her life caring for others, who was now old and aged beyond her years due to her legal woes and the time spent in prison. Time that was perhaps not deserved. Even with public sympathy swinging towards her defense, William Berry and John Henderson were not taking any chances. They petitioned the court for a change of venue for Margaret's upcoming trial. Bias, reputation, and publicity had led to the first trial being unfair towards the defendant. The court agreed with the defense team, and the trial was moved to Winterset, Iowa, 20 miles away from Indianola. 20 miles may not seem like a lot in today's modern world, but back then it would have been a longer journey, and more importantly, the people of Winterset would not have known John Hosack. Or, if they did, they were only acquainted with him and not true friends. No one in Winterset would have heard of his good reputation around Indianola, yet his horrible temper at home and the problems between the two. The papers before had called Margaret suspicious, callous, and indifferent. But now, she was an elderly woman to be pitied. The breaking up of her family and the sale of her farm made people feel sympathy for a woman who was ruled over by a raging and tyrannical husband. With these new views and the new venue, the second trial of Margaret Hosack began on February 19, 1903, more than two years after the murder of John Hosack. The prosecution and defense remained the same, with Clammer leading his side and Barry defending. The judge was now Judge Edmund Nichols. Although they may have spread out, all of Margaret Hosack's nine living children came to her second trial, showing their support for her, walking to the court together with her, and staying the duration of the trial, only to walk back to their lodgings altogether at night. No matter what they may have known or what they thought, they clearly rallied behind their mother. The second trial ran much like the first. Clammer began his opening statements much as he had at the first trial stating that Margaret Hosack was full of hatred towards the husband who had used and abused her for years. However, this time, he admitted that the evidence was circumstantial, but reminded the jurors to put aside any feelings of sympathy that they may have had and make a judgment based on the evidence that they did see, no matter how circumstantial. When pulled all together, the evidence clearly pointed towards Margaret Hosack as the murder of her husband. The defense again painted Margaret as a hardworking and loving mother, but this time, Barry said that there was not enough evidence to support a conviction. There were no witnesses to the crime, the only evidence they had was circumstantial, and he again hammered in the point that John and Margaret had reconciled the year before, and that all differences had been put aside. Why then would Margaret have murdered John? 
The evidence also ran the same, especially for the prosecution, who spoke of the marital issues, the acts, the hairs, the potential resentment that could dwell in Margaret Hosack. Their argument had worked before. Why not now? Again, William Barry countered every claim of George Clammers, but more importantly, there were two new witnesses present at the second trial. The first witness was William Haynes. William Haynes was the neighbor that May and Jimmy had run to the night of their father's murder. He was the one who had refused to come to the Hosack house, saying that he had seen a strange man prowling around his property and would not leave his home. William Haynes had been unable to attend the first trial because he had been taken to a mental institution for being, quote, violently insane, end quote. Having been released from the mental institution, William Haynes was now ready to testify that more than once, Margaret had come to him, telling him how her husband was violent towards her family and begging for his help in ending the problem. The problem being her husband. William Haynes always refused. He never wanted to be involved in anyone's domestic disputes. Whether or not William Haynes spoke the truth is hard to know. For on the stand, he himself admitted to lying to May and Jimmy the night they had come to him asking for help as their father lay dying. He had made up the story about the man on his porch because his wife did not want to be left alone at home during the night. And when Barry, the lead defense attorney, rose to question Haynes, he revealed to the jury that Haynes and John Hosack had often argued with each other and that Haynes had no love for the man. But Haynes said he never would have killed John Hosack, nor even hurt him. His lying to Jimmy and May, as well as his mental instability, led to William Haynes being an unreliable witness, and many in the room doubted his credibility. Perhaps he had misinterpreted Margaret's words of ending the problem, twisting them and taking that as an invitation to harm her husband, when she simply wished for the violence and the outburst to end, and peace to be returned to her family but never any act of revenge to be perpetrated against her husband. William Haynes was not the star witness that George Clammer had hoped for in sealing Margaret's fate. And William Barry had his second new witness to present to the jury as well, a one G.K. Burson. Burson lived only three miles from the Hosack's farm, and on the night of the murder, he said he saw a horseman riding past his house away from the direction of the Hosack's farm. He could not identify the rider, but he did see that they were a man and that the horse was being pushed hard, whipped even, to make it run faster and faster. William Barry was hoping that this new witness and his testimony of a mysterious figure on a horse the night of the murder would cast doubt on Margaret Hosack being the murderer and instead throw suspicion onto some other unknown character. The rider of the horse, G.K. Burson claimed to see, was never identified. And finally, Margaret Hosack was again called to testify. She said that she and her husband were at peace with one another when he died, that John had been a good provider and father for the children, and they had all lived in harmony for the year leading up to that horrible day on the 1st of December of 1900. She did not kill him. She did not see anyone strike the fatal blows. When the time came for the final arguments, the defense this time went first. 
Barry gave his rallying speech of how Margaret was a great mother and caretaker, a loving wife, and how the evidence did not and could not support a guilty conviction. Barry still believed Margaret Hosack was innocent. Clamor followed with his story of the night's events again, except this time, he acted the role of the murder out himself. He had the axe in his hands, and he walked up to the bed which was present in the courtroom that had been preserved in evidence for the past two years. When he reached the bed, he hefted the axe in his hands and brought it down with full force upon the mattress in the frame. The whole bed shuddered, and the axe striking the wood was loud, almost deafening. He wrought another thunderous blow against the bed frame, then turned to the jurors and asked how. How could someone sleep through this? How? After listening to the echoes of the rattling bed frame and the questions of clamor on how a woman could sleep through her husband's murder, the jury left the room to deliberate. Court records show that nine men voted that Margaret was guilty. At her first trial, seven had voted that she was guilty. In a county where neither she nor her husband were well known, it is important to note that more men found her guilty after having been presented with all of the evidence. Of course, there were three men who found her not guilty, and they could not be convinced otherwise. Even when the jury returned to the judge that no verdict could be reached and the judge talked to each and every juror, the three who believed in Margaret Hosack's innocence could not be swayed. It was upon these three men that her balance and the future of her life hung. The judge was left with no choice but to leave it to a board of supervisors whether or not the case would be tried again as he was left with a hung jury. After deliberations, the Board of Supervisors decided not to further prosecute Margaret Hosack and dismissed her case. She was therefore never cleared by a jury of her husband's peers, but by a board that had decided that no new evidence would ever be presented sufficient enough to make a trial worthwhile and to change the outcome of the next trial. Margaret Hosack was free. Her community, her friends, her neighbors, were still unsure as to her innocence or guilt. Some believed she was innocent, others guilty. The most prominent theory, however, was that Margaret Hosack was not the murderer of her husband, but was covering for someone she knew, namely one of her sons, who tired of their father's domineering hand had lifted that axe over him and brought it down on his head. Which son? No one knows. No one would ever know. Margaret Hosack remained free. And the murderer of John Hosack was never found. But what of the living? What of our people who survived this ordeal? What happened to them? George Clammer, the prosecuting lawyer, never ceased to be convinced that Margaret Hosack was guilty of her husband's murder. He removed himself from criminal law and practiced civil law until he died in 1938 at the age of 64. William Barry, Margaret's defense lawyer, continued to practice law all his life as well. In 1921, the first female jurors were allowed to serve in Warren County. Barry would have been there to see that. 
One wonders if he thought of Margaret Hosack being judged by not hers, but her husband's peers, as he heard the news of the first women jurors to serve. He died on March 25, 1953, of a heart attack after arriving to work, ever diligent to the end. Donald Murchison, Margaret's older brother, who had stood by her in her trial and who was the only family member she ever saw again after leaving Illinois, died in 1910 in Illinois. His obituary mentioned a sister in Iowa, but not by name. In fact, it seemed as though the Murchisons tried to erase Margaret from their history. Her niece once wrote a small paragraph on the family for the 100th anniversary of the founding of Elmira, Illinois. She mentioned all of Alexander Hosack's children by name except Margaret, who was not mentioned at all. At all. In her small statement, Margaret's niece wrote that Alexander had had only three children, Alex Jr., Jane, and Donald. He had four. Margaret was the fourth. And what of Margaret's children? What happened to them? It seems that the trial of their mother brought them together, yet the death of their father who had ruled over them drove them apart. Alex, the oldest son, the one conceived outside of wedlock, had four children. His wife died several years after the trial, leaving him to care for his young family. He left his children to be raised by his wife's sister and traveled the country looking for work, but never stayed in one place for too long. He died in poverty in 1939 in Iowa. Anna Henry, the oldest daughter, remained in Iowa. She had seven children. She was plagued by depression throughout her life and died in 1932. She never wavered in the belief that her mother was innocent of the murder of her father. Louis and Joe Kemp moved to Colorado. In 1909, Louie died after giving birth to her fourth child. She was only 31 years old. Cassie, who had been sleeping upstairs on the night of her father's murder, married Will Selke and moved to Utah, staying far away from her siblings and raising Louie's fourth child after her death. Johnny moved on from Iowa, drifting until he eventually moved to California working in the oil fields. He was 58 years old when he died in a mental institute in San Bernardino. May, who had been sharing a room with Cassie and had been asleep upstairs when her father was murdered, stayed in Iowa. She had six children. She was married to Ira Coulter, who unfortunately turned into a version of her unstable and unkind father, often short-tempered and angry. May eventually suffered a breakdown and left him. She was said to be a bitter and unhappy person after this event, but she lived the longest of any of the Hosack children, dying in 1956 at the age of 76. Will, who had slaughtered the turkey for Thanksgiving, worked at the Truett farm like Johnny had done before him. He was a nervous man who eventually moved to Colorado and lost touch with his family. In his early 30s, he was placed in a mental institution, and in 1918, Never married, he died of syphilis. He was 36. Jimmy, present at the house at the time of his father's murder, 
worked at a railroad in Indianola and never left. He never married or had children and was known around town to be mean-spirited and rude like his father. An alcoholic, he died in 1945. What then is the legacy of John Hosack? How is he remembered? Was he a prosperous farmer or a raging father? Was he an individual or simply a man who was reduced to a sensation when he was murdered in his bed? What did he leave behind? His legacy is perhaps best described by the life and words of his youngest child, Ivan. Of all the Hosack children, Ivan seemed to have the most normal and stable life. Was it because he had had the least time with his father? Because he was able to escape earlier due to John's murder? We don't know. But what we do know is that after a few years of living with the Van Pattens on a farm not far from where his father was killed, Ivan left and joined the Ringling Brothers Circus, where he learned to be a barber. He served during World War I and eventually moved to South Dakota, where he opened his own barber shop and married his wife Myrtle. He loved pheasant hunting. He loved his only daughter, Maxine, of whom he was devoted to and protective of. He never spoke to her of what had happened to his family back in Iowa when he was only a boy of 13. When Maxine was a teenager, Ivan took his small family back to Iowa for a family reunion, where from her cousins, Maxine first heard the story of what had happened to her grandfather. Not wanting to rattle her father, but desiring to know more, she only once asked him, What did my grandfather die of? Having been there the night of his father's murder, having both testified and sat at the trial, having heard all of the evidence presented and possibly knowing more than even that, Ivan answered with only four words. He died of meanness. And Margaret? Margaret Hosack went on to live a quiet life, never speaking publicly again of the murder of her husband John or of the subsequent trial that followed. She often visited her children and grandchildren, who remained in Iowa. Whether or not she ever returned to the farm that had once belonged to her and her husband is not known, though it is doubtful, as it was now in the possession of another family. Torn from one land, and having had her own land taken from her, Margaret Hosack lived in a boarding house until she died on August 25th of 1916. She is buried next to her husband, John. This podcast was written and produced by me, Tate Rudolphy. If you are interested in any of my source materials, please see the podcast description. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. You can follow this and future podcasts produced by me on my Instagram at Tate Presents. Thank you for listening.